Good morning, everybody. All right. We're going to get right to it. Matthew chapter 4. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there. I have to preface this uh, sermon by saying uh, Jacob Maxwell had the sweater first. There you go, Jacob. He sports it much better than I do. So there you go. Is that okay? All right, thanks. He told me to do that. Um, Awesome. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses 1 through 11 this morning and talking through the temptation of Jesus. And um, we're going to break down just three specific temptations that Satan uh, threw at Jesus in this text. And uh, we're going to talk through what that means for you and I. And so if you guys would just uh, pray with me, and then we're going to read this text and get into it. Jesus, thanks for this time. Thanks for your word. I pray that you'd use your word to illuminate our hearts. God, I pray that you'd speak to us in every condition that we're in this morning. God, may your love and your grace and your forgiveness be known and experienced in this place, Jesus. And may we be a people that don't hoard your love and your grace and your forgiveness to ourselves, but look at it as a great privilege to bestow that upon others that we come in contact with. Lord, thank you for this time we get this morning. I pray you'd bless it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test." Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will, f- I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve on- and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In Matthew chapter 4, um, we pick up on this event in the life of Jesus that happens directly after his baptism, which we went over last week. Um, and this event is the temptation of Christ. And um, while we're going to learn a ton from this passage today, and I think it applies to everybody, I think some of the lessons that I wanted to derive from this passage today are especially pertinent to a very specific kind of person, namely to those who are Uber-driven, and I know Uber has kind of like ruined that phrase for us, right? Uh, When I say Uber-driven, I mean people who are just dead set driven in their life. They're all about accomplishing tasks and getting this and getting that. Um, It's like the 13-year-old girl who, when you ask what she wants to do with her life, she basically pulls out a chart and spreadsheets and gives you like a 15-minute excerpt of like what her life's going to look like, or the man who always finds himself looking back at the end of each day to evaluate what it is he accomplished in that day, like a person who's addicted to progress, who, who loves forward motion, um, a person who has trouble disconnecting in their life, and a person who sometimes even at dinner, maybe the family would be talking about something, and 
their mind drifts off into what they have to do next and what they have to do to grow this company or get that company or to get to the next level here or the next level there. Or the person, and I'll be guilty of this, who uh, potentially texts and drives and talks at the same time. Anybody ever done that before in this room? I'm the only one, and I'm so guilty this morning. Um, It's possible, though, because by Bluetooth, you can send it to your stereo system and be talking on the phone while you're texting and driving, so it's an interesting. um, Don't do it. Uh, But these kind of people, as I talk about, like Uber-driven people, are people who are driven like addicted to efficiency in their life. Like everything has to run on a schedule because they have uh, their day organized in order to take advantage of all their opportunities to progress. Does anybody know anybody like that? That's just uber driven. They're the kind of people who have a schedule for their downtime. (laughs) They get stressed out when things don't go according to their plan because they aren't gonna be able to accomplish everything that they wanted to accomplish in their downtime. And some of you here this morning are these people, and some of you are just seated next to these people this morning. Um, but I know who you are because uh, the, those who, of you who are these people are the ones who are looking at the clock while I'm preaching. And you're thinking, man, he spent four minutes talking about this. He could have done that so much faster. I wish he'd just get through this sermon so we can go on and get, get through our day. But Um, These people are supreme multitaskers. Um, Like, since I've started talking this morning, you've already paid three bills and sent four emails. Look at the phones next to you. Anybody guilty of doing that this morning? But here's what I know about these people. A lot of time, these kinds of people don't really care that much about money. It really isn't about the dollar. What they love is creating, and they love conquering. Um, What's the next benchmark that they can achieve in their life? What's the next company they can turn around? What's the next big mile marker moment they can create in their life? And they feel driven or almost called to get to the top. And if that's you this morning, there, there's two things that, that I want you to know. One is God in some form or fashion created you that way. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But second, being that way comes from with comes with some really unique challenges in your life. And Jesus, I think, reveals to us a bit of how to overcome those challenges. And so I want to walk through this passage and look at three specific temptations that Satan, the devil, threw at Jesus. And I'll tell you, this is one of the more illuminating and helpful passages of Scripture for me um, because I actually find myself caught up in that driven category and have been in seasons of my life so dead set on things that I actually miss the will of God. I'm actually willing to put other things before the things that are important. And I've seen the struggle and I've seen the blessing in being wired this way. And so the word says this, Matthew says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then the most obvious verse in all of scripture, and after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) And the first word I want to tee off on there is this word then. Um, It doesn't just mean, and then this happened. It means that 
what happens in chapter 4 actually connects to what happened in chapter 3, as we talked about. Jesus of the Father's Son, in whom he's well pleased. The Father declares him as the Son of God, like his beloved Son in whom he's pleased. He's on this spiritual high, and then the devil creeps in. And I think that oftentimes in our life, this is how Satan works. These spiritual highs that we have are, also, are, are usually followed by these spiritual lows. Like you hear this voice from heaven that then is followed by this voice from hell. I, start, I heard somebody once say that new levels bring new devils. And I thought that, that was kind of a funny statement. But um, think of the baptism as this place of celebration, this place of joy and friendship that there was something amazing happening in this time between the Father and between Jesus and the message that it was sending to others. Um, there's this water, there's this lush vegetation around this river that Jesus is being baptized in, and then it's followed by this time of total isolation, this dry, desert, cracked, parched land. And so the, this area that Jesus goes to, um, it, it's called Jeshimon, and it literally means devastation, the place of devastation, this desert that D Jesus goes out to. Um, I, I heard a guy once talking about this passage, and he compared it to a hiking trip he took to, with his buddies to Yellowstone National Park. Um, and I just want to say this morning that this was nothing like Yellowstone National Park. This was like out in the middle of nowhere. Like Jesus had nothing surrounding him. He was in the middle of the desert, in the middle of devastation. And this was a horrible place for Jesus to have to spend 40 days, six weeks, alone with who? The devil. Literally, in the middle of the nowhere, alone with the devil. Not some sort of like JV demon, but the devil himself out in the middle of the desert. Honestly, I cannot think of a worse situation. If you know me at all, you know that I hate being alone for long periods of time. I absolutely hate camping. I hate not eating. Um, I hate going into the desert. Um, most definitely, I would hate being alone with Satan for six weeks. And Jesus finds himself in the middle of the desert, alone with Satan for six weeks after this amazing spiritual high, this time of declaration of the Father telling him that he is his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. But whenever God does something amazing in your life, you can count on it that Satan's actually going to be right behind him to try to pull up the seeds that God's planted. Constantly. We have these spiritual highs where we're, we feel like we're riding the mountain with Jesus and the next thing to follow is this moment in your life when you feel like everything good that was invested in you is like being ripped out or that something is facing you in life that you never imagined you'd have to face. Some of you are going through that right now in your life and some of you are about to go through it in your life and I want you this morning to recognize it for, for what it is so that you don't panic when you get to these situations in your life. Some of you are asking the question, like, what's wrong? God seemed so close. His voice seemed so clear. Like, was it merely an illusion that I experienced? But these times of revelation in our lives are often followed by times of testing. Then the devil. Jesus has this high, and then the next thing to follow, after 40 days of fasting, drawing near to the Father, the enemy shows up. 
And the fact that you go through a time of temptation and struggle doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian or that you've experienced a baptism that was not real. Jesus was tempted severely right after this spiritual high in his life, and so will you be. We will all go through these seasons. In fact, I was thinking this week, uh, if if it's been a while since you've had some sort of head-on collision with Satan, then you you haven't quite uh, faced the temptation or this collision with the enemy lately in your life, maybe it's because you're actually going the same direction he is. Because oftentimes when we press into the Lord and we move in that direction, we begin to walk in obedience and serve him, we're met with opposition. Secondly, notice the reality of Satan. Like many people would think that it's naive or like unsophisticated to believe in a Satan because the Satan that we know of, the devil that we see in the world that we live in is just some dude with horns and red spandex and a pitchfork. And we've made him into a caricature. We've made him into a cartoon. We haven't actually made him out to be the, the, the supernatural being that actually works in the world for evil and destruction. That's his purpose, to come against the church, to come against God's people. Jesus didn't think it was naive to believe in a devil, that he actually existed. Neither did Peter, neither did Paul, neither did John. In in fact, Satan is mentioned 250 times, separate times in the New Testament, which means almost once per chapter in the New Testament, the devil is mentioned. That's a ton. And I would say that it's actually naive to not believe that there's a Satan. First of all, if you believe in God, the the idea that there is an evil, a supernatural force, is not strange. It's not a stretch. And when you look at the the evil of the world, there has to be something more to it than just simply misguided people trying to survive. If you think of all that was behind the Holocaust, it wasn't just a bad guy named Hitler. If you think about slavery, it wasn't just about economics and racism. I think we're naive to think those things. There's another force at work. If you, if you think the primary factor like in your problem with pornography, for instance, is that you've got issues with self-control, I think you're naive. Because I think there's a force coming against you in your life. And if you constantly think of him as the cute dude in red spandex and horns with a pitchfork, you're approaching him wrongly. It's a supernatural force that was actually purposed to come against you. If you think that all the distractions at work and in your family that make it really hard to keep God at the center are simply the result of your demanding schedule, I think you're naive. My my wife and I literally feel this opposition to our family and spending time with Jesus on a regular basis. We have these conversations. Why is it so hard to create time for our family to actually spend time? Why is it so hard to pray together? Why is it so hard to turn to Jesus in the midst of difficult situations? The reason it's hard is because it's real. It's not just your schedules that are keeping you from turning to Jesus. There's actually another force at play an oppositional force coming against you in your life. If you think that 
all that's at work in your relational tension in your community group or the trouble in your marriage, and you think it's just a conflict between two difficult personalities, I think you're naive. If you think that bitterness creeping up into your soul is just the frustration of being misunderstood in your life, I think you're naive. I think there's a bigger force at hand. There's this enemy whose sole goal is to, as the Bible states, kill, 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 steal, and destroy. And Jesus said he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers and principalities of darkness. But if you don't know who you're fighting against, you actually do not know how to fight. Satan doesn't care if you believe in him or not. In fact, it helps him if you don't because you're most vulnerable to an enemy when you don't even acknowledge the existence of the enemy that, that is out there. And so watch what the enemy does first. Verse three, it says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, wait, if you're the son of God. What, what had God just declared at Jesus' baptism just a few verses prior? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And now Satan's like, if that's true, if you are the son of God, he's questioning it. He's throwing doubt. Satan's go-to tactic is to actually break the hold of the word of God upon your life. Somebody once told me that Satan puts question marks in your life where God's put periods. From the beginning, Satan's tactic has been to separate us from the word of God. That has been his goal. In the Garden of Eden, he shows up in exactly the same way. And he says, did God really say that? Are you sure he has your best interest at heart? Jesus told a story about a farmer who goes out to scatter some seeds. And after he did, a bird who was representative of Satan, Jesus said, comes along and snatched it up before it could even take root. And that's literally what he's doing. Taking the good that's being thrown down and he's snatching it up before it has the chance to actually take root. His strategy is not just to make you doubt God's word, but actually to distract you from it. If you look over at the person beside you um, and they look kind of distracted, looking at Twitter or something, um, grab that phone and literally sling it across the room and yell <laughs> Demons get out, right? Like, like the enemy is at work and causing distraction in your life. It's his best attempt to thwart what God wants to do in and through you. So here, here's the reality. Some of you don't know enough of the word of God for Satan to have anything to steal from you. That's the reality for some of us, which is actually why he ends up leaving you alone. Because ignorance actually serves him best. Like you haven't allowed the seed to be planted. It says in verse three, if you're the son of God, command these stones become bread. So finally, we get at these temptations. But he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the first temptation is this, to, pr to prioritize the gifts of God over God himself. There was nothing wrong with bread in and of itself, was there? But it was not God's will for Jesus at this time. He had been led by the Spirit to fast. The Spirit had led Jesus to withstand from 
food for 40 days. And it's significant that the first temptation is not to do something blatantly immoral against Jesus. It's to go after something good that's just not in God's plan yet, right? Bread. Satan's not tempting Jesus with booze and naked women. (laughs) It's bread. Satan's primary strategy is to take a good thing, like a job, like your marriage, relationships, like your children, and make it so important that it drives out all your decisions because you think, I want this more than anything else. That's the havoc that he's wreaking on the church. You think, I can be single, or I can't be single, I can't be happy like this, and God's not working fast enough, so I'll take matters into my own hands and I'll make that relationship happen. I have to make more money. I have to get ahead. Like, God's moving too slow, so I'm going to make some things happen to get what I need. I I have to have the approval of my friends, so I'll do this and that in order to gain that. I have to be the best. I have to be recognized by others, and that desire actually ends up dominating your emotions, and it controls your behaviors. And so what is Jesus' response? He quotes a verse from the book of Deuteronomy where where Israel had been wandering in the wilderness, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Like there's something important to me, he says, than even bread, and that's actually fellowship with God. It's fellowship with the Father. Something more sustaining to him than even physical food is, is God's declaration over us, that, that, that we, or over Jesus, that he is his beloved son. That physical bread is good, but your soul actually finds completeness in God himself. There's a lot of good things being thrown out at you guys nowadays. And when we think of temptation in our life, we always jump to the easy ones. And I'll say that the temptations that we jump to are often addictions, which are actually us giving into temptations so many times that they manifest into habitual behaviors. But the temptations in and of themselves, they start out real small, and they start out real easy, and they actually start out in things that potentially could be good and cause you to begin to resist God's plan in order to accomplish what it is you want. So temptation number one is prioritizing the gifts of God over God himself, to turn a good thing into an ultimate thing and to replace God with it. Um, To get really personal with you guys, Uh, I've said before that I I know Satan wants me to be driven, like, to become this successful pastor. Like, in my 10 years of doing this, in my 20 years almost of being in ministry, I felt the temptation to be driven by success, to do a bunch of really good things and to be noticed. And so often, Satan's the first one, the minute I get off this stage, to tell you how good of a sermon that was. (laughs) What a good job you did. Or to tell you how horrible that was. To heap the shame and the guilt upon you. Or to get in your head and convince you that you're not qualified or capable to do what he's asked you to do. But it's really interesting. There's nothing wrong with encouragement or even constructive criticism at that. But he wants me to base my happiness in my identity. Or he doesn't want me to base my happiness and identity on how good I am as a pastor. 
what I can accomplish for God. And it's this crazy trap because he knows that the next time I preach, if I don't do as good or not enough people tell me that that was good, I feel unsettled, I feel unhappy, I get discouraged. And that makes me super vulnerable to other temptations in my life. Like that little bit of discouragement opens these doors in our lives that we have to guard ourselves against these attempts. Like we can't base our life off of success. And many of you in, your room, in this room are trying to climb the ladder and get somewhere and make something happen in your life. And I'm telling you right now, it's this crazy trap because the minute you start to go down it, you will start to sacrifice all that is truly good in order to pick up secondary things. If you live by success, you'll die by success because success cannot sustain you. It can't. But if you live by fellowship with Jesus, if you live by fellowship with the Father, you'll have life, you'll have joy everlasting. Verses five and six says, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, there it is again, this doubt, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He quotes from Psalm 91. It's an interesting that Satan begins to quote scripture. Like he knows verses and he knows how to use them. Like, can I just stop here and say this this morning, that just because you find a verse for something doesn't mean you're actually using the Bible correctly. People over the years have given me verses and some of the most jacked up interpretations of scripture that you can ever imagine. <laughs> By cherry picking scripture and dropping it in your lap and trying to apply it to a certain circumstance in your life. The Bible says God wants me to be happy and I can't be happy in my current marriage. So I know that means he wants me to leave that marriage to go somewhere else and don't argue with me because God told me to do it and I have peace about it. <laughs> I've heard that. I just quit my job. I cashed in my retirement, put all these, these, these eggs into this magic business because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I once saw these two UFC fighters, this picture of two UFC fighters um, before the fight, and both of them had Philippians 4.13 tattooed on them. And you think to yourself like, this is interesting. <laughs> it's like Jesus versus Jesus in this match. But we actually have to know the word of God and not just cherry pick verses to try to get our way and get what we want for our lives. And one of the reasons we actually encourage this church to be connected in community groups is that you're much less likely to interpret scripture wrongly when you read it in community. When other people can say things to you like, I'm pretty sure that's not what that verse means. That's a good thing. <laughs> like some of the best mentors I've had in my life are people that are like, yeah, that's not right. Like, let me help you find some context to that verse and understand what this is actually saying. That's really good for me. Verse seven, Jesus says to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The key word, I think, is Test. Satan is tempting Jesus to test God, to prove that God will take care of him. 
Like you know, if you really, if you were really the son of God, if God really cared about you, he wouldn't let you get hurt in a situation like this. So why don't you just try this? And if he keeps you safe, then you'll know that you're really his beloved son. And Jesus' response, why would I need God to prove what he's already declared? Why would I need to test God to see if he's actually telling the truth? Because I know what he said was true. Temptation number two, uh, to interpret God through our circumstances. It's often so easy for us to succumb to this one. Like when life goes really good, we think we're experiencing the pleasure of God. And when life goes bad, we think God must be angry and we question whether or not he exists at all. God, you say me lo- you love me, but then this happens. Or we start saying, God, um, what have I done wrong? Like, why are you punishing me for what I'm experiencing in my life? And look at Jesus. He was the beloved son of God, completely pleasing to God, completely in step with the spirit, exactly where he was supposed to be, yet not shielded from pain at all, and finds himself in this desert fasting for 40 days. And Jesus said that, For those who follow him, he actually says that the cross would be the center of our lives. It would be central. The the cross, it it, it meant like, it was a meaning of, it meant meant misunderstanding. It meant betrayal by friends. It meant suffering. It often meant unjust suffering. It meant sacrifice in our lives. And he said, the servant is not better than the master. And so what Jesus experienced, we can also expect to experience in our life. And when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't actually calling us into some sort of barefoot walk through a meadow with rainbows. <laughs> he was actually calling us to a cross where he went, where we would die to ourselves, where we would relate to him in our death. And by his spirit, be granted resurrected life. Amen? When this happens in your life, when, when the Spirit takes you into the desert of financial hardship in your life, some of you are in that now. Or when you go through betrayal by your friends, some of you find yourself in that situation now. What about difficulty with your spouse? What about disrespect that you're facing from others? What about um, children that are unappreciative? Anybody ever have to deal with that one? What will you believe in those moments? Because it'll come. It'll happen. What will you believe? That God is against you? Or that he's actually with you in that? What will you believe? Will you interpret God's word through your circumstances or your circumstances through God's word? John Owen, an English theologian, said this. The greatest insult you can give to God after the cross would be to doubt his love for you. It goes on to say in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and you worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Temptation three, to pursue a good thing in the wrong way. Let me tell you why this temptation was so stinking powerful. 
Because the kingdoms of the world are exactly what Jesus came for. They're exactly what God promised to him. And so Satan is offering him this chance to have it. But to have it through a shortcut. To avoid the pain of the cross. To get there via the shortcut. So he doesn't have to experience all that he knows he's going to have to go through. And this is the temptation of of compromise. You really, really want to get here in your life, whatever that is. And you think that that's what God wants, but God doesn't seem to be getting you there fast enough. And so you'll compromise in order to get there. I heard a guy say that um, when he was a child, he used to pray every night for the Lord to give him a bicycle. And then one day he realized that in all of his wisdom, God doesn't work that way. So he said he just stole one and asked for forgiveness. <laughs> and there's this temptation in our life to take the shortcut to things that you think you're actually entitled to. To sacrifice your integrity, to sacrifice your family responsibilities as a husband or a wife, as a mother or a father, in order to get to the next level. Maybe your wife tells you that you're working too much and your family's suffering and your kids need their dad. And you're like, yeah, but I really want to get there. And there is this good place. And once we get there, things will be so much easier for us. We say things like, I'll be able to give more money. I'll be able to do more for my family. I'll be able to have more time and money to invest in the church. And so right now, I'm going to shortcut my morality and what I know is right, shortcut my responsibilities to my family, or shortcut my responsibilities to my involvement in the local church just so I can get somewhere faster. And it's the perfect excuse. When you say that, you're literally in the grip of Satan himself. It all starts in this moment when you're frustrated with life and you think that the issue is your circumstances that you find yourself in, that your issue is the person that you're married to or that you're not married to, that your issue is the job that you have, it's the money you make, and you think, if I could just get this other thing, then I would be happy. And honestly, we all have these places we go at times that convince us that if we if we can do this or we can have this, things will just be better. That we'll be better set up for the future. That we better be better to be, we'll, we'll be set up better to be servants of Jesus than we are now. And we buy the lie. And that thing that you're talking about is not the issue. Like if you really want to have joy, you need to be able to look up at the dark ceiling in your bed at night and know ex- that you are exactly where God wants you to be doing exactly what God wants you to do, and that is the only true way to peace in your life. Can you say that right now? Or have some of you in this room bought the lie to shortcut your morality and your responsibilities in order to achieve something that either isn't for you to have or isn't for you to have right now? Verse 
Verse 11, and then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him and sort of get this image here of like these angels coming in like X-wing fighters and like they're like ministering to Jesus and he's just supernaturally pumped up. But for these three temptations, like at the core of the enemy's strategy is to prioritize something good more than you do God, to evaluate how God feels about you by your circumstances, or to go around God in order to do something good. team to come up. I found this story online this week, and all I, saw, all I found was an excerpt, and I told Angela, I'm like, I found this excerpt, and it's so awesome, but I cannot find anything about the author. I cannot find um, anything about the rest of the book that he wrote or the story that this came from, and so Angela helped me scour the web and ended up finding that this guy was a pastor from the early 1900s, and he wrote this book. And um, in this book, it was a collection of stories in, from his life that God used to teach him something about the word. And so it's written like it's from the early 1900s, so bear with me. Um, but this, this, this story describes, as he calls it, one quiet night in early spring. Suddenly out of the night came the sound of wild geese flying. I ran to the house and breathlessly announced the excitement I felt. What's to compare with wild geese across the moon? I couldn't think of anything better, can you? It might have ended there except for the sight of our tame mallards on the pond. They heard the wild call that they had once known. The honking out of the night sent little arrows of prompting deep into their wild yesterdays. I don't normally talk like this. Um, their wings fluttered a feeble response, the urge to fly, to take their place in the sky for which God had made them, was sounding in their feathered breasts, but they never raised from the water. The matter had been settled long ago. The corn of the barnyard was too tempting. Now their desire to fly only made them uncomfortable. Temptation is always enjoyed at the price of losing the capacity for flight. Satan offers Jesus corn in exchange for his capacity to fly, and Jesus chooses flight. And so often in our lives, we choose corn. So often in our lives, I think that we want Jesus to actually choose corn as well. Like We want Jesus to use his magical son of God powers to fix us, to fix our lives, to fix our world. And we end up feeling torn we want to be fed. We want to be kept safe. We want the pleasures and power and success that the world has to offer us. But the tension is we also want to fly. And it's interesting that we're a month away from this season of Advent uh, where we'll celebrate the arrival of our King. And you do so by celebrating or like examining your hearts, like looking to Jesus for four weeks. And so there's maybe a time of of, of fasting and a time of prayer. And it's so interesting that in the season that we're leading up to, um, it's all about changing our behavior, like digging deep, relying on Jesus, relying on his word and rejecting 
the corn in, fla- in, in favor of flight by the Spirit and this long-awaited King. And I want to invite you guys this morning, as corny as this sounds, to forgo the corn in your life. To learn to live on what you need and not what you want. Because what you want has the potential of keeping you from actually taking flight in your life. If you stand with me, we're going to spend some time worshiping. And while we worship, I want you to dig deep into your hearts. What's the corn that you've bought? What have you traded in and for flight? What's the lie that you've bought? What's the wrestling that's going on deep in your soul this morning? What is Jesus challenging you with? And as we worship him, I'm gonna come back up in a minute or so and just lead us in a time of prayer over one another. Um, But I want you to dig deep in your heart and assess where you're at this morning and what things Jesus wants to break off in your life and what temptations are luring you away from the better thing.